Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. By Richard P. Feynman. Continued. Cassette 5, Side 2. I figured out that it was the tambourine, which the guy was playing in a complicated way, twisting his wrist and hitting the skin with his thumb. I found that interesting, and learned how to play the pendeiru, more or less. Then the season for Carnival began to come around. That's the season when new music is presented. They don't put out new music and records all the time. They put them all out during Carnival time, and it's very exciting. It turned out that the janitor was the composer for a small samba school, not a school in the sense of education, but in the sense of fish, from Copacabana Beach called Fersantes de Copacabana, which means fakers from Copacabana, which was just right for me, and he invited me to be in it. Now this samba school was a thing where guys from the favelas, the poor sections of the city, would come down and meet behind a construction lot where some apartment houses were being built and practice the new music for the carnival. I chose to play a thing called the frigideira, which is a toy frying pan made of metal, about six inches in diameter, with a little metal stick to beat it with. It's an accompanying instrument which makes a tinkly, rapid noise that goes with the main samba music and rhythm and fills it out. So I tried to play this thing, and everything was going all right. We were practicing, the music was roaring along, and we were going like sixty, when all of a sudden the head of the batteria section, a great big black man, yelled out, Stop! Hold it! Hold it! Wait a minute! And everybody stopped. Something's wrong with the Frigideras, he boomed out. Oh, Americano, otra vez. The American again. So I felt uncomfortable. I practiced all the time. I walk along the beach holding two sticks that I had picked up, getting the twisty motion of the wrists, practicing, practicing, practicing. I kept working on it, but I always felt inferior, that I was some kind of trouble and wasn't really up to it. Well, it was getting closer to carnival time, and one evening there was a conversation between the leader of the band and another guy, and then the leader started coming around, picking people out. You, he said to a trumpeter, you! he said to a singer, You! And he pointed to me. I figured we were finished. He said, Go out in front. We went out to the front of the construction site, the five or six of us, and there was an old Cadillac convertible with its top down. Get in, the leader said. There wasn't enough room for us all, so some of us had to sit up on the back. I said to the guy next to me, What's he doing? Is he putting us out? Now say, now say. I don't know. We drove off way up high on a road, which ended near the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea. The car stopped, and the leader said, Get out. And they walked us right up to the edge of the cliff. And sure enough, he said, Now line up. You first, you next, you next. Start playing. Now march. We would have marched off the edge of the cliff except for a steep trail that went down. So our little group goes down the trail, the trumpet, the singer, 
the guitar, the pendero, and the frigidera, to an outdoor party in the woods. We weren't picked out because the leader wanted to get rid of us. He was sending us to this private party that wanted some samba music. And afterwards, he collected money to pay for some costumes for our band. After that, I felt a little better, because I realized that when he picked the frigidera player, he picked me. Another thing happened to increase my confidence. Sometime later, a guy came from another samba school, in Leblon, a beach further on. He wanted to join our school. The boss said, Where are you from? Leblon. What do you play? Frigidera. Okay, let me hear you play the frigidera. So this guy picked up his frigidera and his metal stick and rap da dup chicka chick Gee whiz, it was wonderful. The boss said to him, You go over there and stand next to O Americano, and you'll learn how to play the frigidera. My theory is that it's like a person who speaks French who comes to America. At first they're making all kinds of mistakes, and you can hardly understand them. Then they keep on practicing until they speak rather well, and you find there's a delightful twist to their way of speaking. Their accent is rather nice, and you love to listen to it. So I must have had some sort of accent playing the frigidata, because I couldn't compete with those guys who had been playing it all their lives. It must have been some kind of dumb accent. But whatever it was, I became a rather successful frigidata player. One day, shortly before carnival time, the leader of the samba school said, Okay, we're going to practice marching in the street. We all went out from the construction site to the street, and it was full of traffic. The streets of Copacabana were always a big mess. Believe it or not, there was a trolley line in which the trolley cars went one way, and the automobiles went the other way. Here it was rush hour in Copacabana, and we were going to march down the middle of the Avenida Atlantica. I said to myself, Jesus, the boss didn't get a license. He didn't okay it with the police. He didn't do anything. He's decided we're just going to go out. So we started to go out into the street, and everybody all around was excited. Some volunteers from a group of bystanders took a rope and formed a big square around our band so the pedestrians wouldn't walk through our lines. People started to lean out of the windows. Everybody wanted to hear the new samba music. It was very exciting. As soon as we started to march, I saw a policeman way down at the other end of the road. He looked, saw what was happening, and started diverting traffic. Everything was informal. Nobody made any arrangements, but it worked fine. The people were holding the ropes around us. The policeman was diverting the traffic. The pedestrians were crowded and the traffic was jammed, but we were going along great. We walked down the street, around the corners, and all over the damn Copacabana, at random. Finally, we ended up in a little square in front of the apartment where the boss's mother lived. We stood there in this place, playing, and the guy's mother and aunt and so on came down. They had aprons on. They had been working in the kitchen, and you could see their excitement. They were almost crying. It was really nice to do that human stuff. And all the people leaning out of the windows. That was terrific. And I remembered the time I had been in Brazil before, and had seen one of these samba bands. How I loved the music, and nearly went crazy over it. And now I was in it. By the way, when we were marching around the streets of Copacabana that day, I saw in a group on the sidewalk two young ladies from the embassy. Next week I got a note from the embassy saying, 
It's a great thing you are doing, yak, 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 as if my purpose was to improve relations between the United States and Brazil. So it was a great thing I was doing. Well, in order to go to these rehearsals, I didn't want to go dressed in my regular clothes that I wore to the university. The people in the band were very poor and had only old, tattered clothes. So I put on an old undershirt, some old pants, and so forth, so I wouldn't look too peculiar. But then I couldn't walk out of my luxury hotel on Avenida Atlantica and Copacabana Beach through the lobby. So I always took the elevator down to the bottom and went out through the basement. A short time before Carnival, there was going to be a special competition between the samba schools of the beaches, Copacabana, Ipanema, and Leblanc. There were three or four schools, and we were one. We were going to march in costume down Avenida Atlantica. I felt a little uncomfortable about marching in one of those fancy Carnival costumes, since I wasn't a Brazilian, but we were supposed to be dressed as Greeks. So I figured, I'm as good a Greek as they are. On the day of the competition, I was eating at the hotel restaurant, and the head waiter, who had often seen me tapping on the table when there was samba music playing, came over to me and said, Mr. Feynman, this evening there's going to be something you will love. It's tipicu brasileiro, typical Brazilian. There's going to be a march of the samba school right in front of the hotel, and the music is so good, you must hear it. I said, Well, I, I'm kind of busy tonight. I don't know if I can make it. Oh, but you'd love it so much. You must not miss it. It's tipicu brasileiro. He was very insistent, and as I kept telling him I didn't think I'd be there to see it, he became disappointed. That evening I put on my old clothes and went down through the basement as usual. We put on the costumes at the construction lot and began marching down Evanita Atlantica, a hundred Brazilian Greeks in paper mache and I was in the back, playing away on the Frigideira. Big crowds were along both sides of the Avenida. Everybody was leaning out of the windows, and we were coming up to the Miramar Hotel where I was staying. People were standing on the tables and chairs, and there were crowds and crowds of people. We were playing along, going like sixty, as our band started to pass in front of the hotel. Suddenly, I saw one of the waiters shoot up in the air, pointing with his arm, and through all this noise I can hear him scream, Oh, Professor! So the head waiter found out why I wasn't able to be there that evening to see the competition. I was in it. The next day I saw a lady I knew from meeting her on the beach all the time, who had an apartment overlooking the Avenida. She had some friends over to watch the parade of the samba schools, and when we went by... One of her friends exclaimed, Listen to that guy play the Frigideira. He is good. I had succeeded. I got a kick out of succeeding at something I wasn't supposed to be able to do. When the time came for Carnival, not very many people from our school showed up. There were some special costumes that were made just for the occasion, but not enough people. Maybe they had the attitude that we couldn't win against the really big samba schools from the city. I don't know. I thought we were working day after day, practicing and marching for the Carnival. But when Carnival came, a lot of the band didn't show up, and we didn't compete very well. Even as we were marching around in the street, some of the band wandered off. Funny result. I never did understand it very well. But maybe the main excitement and fun was trying to win the contest of the beaches, where most people felt their level was. And we did win, by the way.
During that ten-month stay in Brazil, I got interested in the energy levels of the lighter nuclei. I worked out all the theory for it in my hotel room, but I wanted to check how the data from the experiments looked. This was new stuff that was being worked out up at the Kellogg Laboratory by the experts at Caltech, so I made contact with them. The timing was all arranged by ham radio. I found an amateur radio operator in Brazil, and about once a week I'd go over to his house. He'd make contact with the ham radio operator in Pasadena, and then, because there was something slightly illegal about it, he'd give me some call letters and would say, "Now, I'll turn you over to WKWX, who's sitting next to me, and would like to talk to you." So I'd say, "This is WKWX. Could you please tell me the spacing between the certain levels in boron we talked about last week, and so on." I would use the data from the experiments to adjust my constants and check whether I was on the right track. The first guy went on vacation, but he gave me another amateur radio operator to go to. The second guy was blind and operated his station. They were both very nice, and the contact I had with Caltech by ham radio was very effective and useful to me. As for the physics itself, I worked out quite a good deal, and it was sensible. It was worked out and verified by other people later. I decided, though, that I had so many parameters that I had to adjust too much phenomenological adjustment of constants to make everything fit. That I couldn't be sure it was very useful. I wanted a rather deeper understanding of the nuclei, and I was never quite convinced it was very significant. So I never did anything with it. In regard to education in Brazil, I had a very interesting experience. I was teaching a group of students who would ultimately become teachers, since at that time there were not many opportunities in Brazil for a highly trained person in science. These students had already had many courses, and this was to be their most advanced course in electricity and magnetism, Maxwell's equations, and so on. The university was located in various office buildings throughout the city, and the course I taught met in a building which overlooked the bay. I discovered a very strange phenomenon. I could ask a question, which the students would answer immediately, but the next time I would ask the question, the same subject and the same question, as far as I could tell, they couldn't answer it at all. For instance, one time I was talking about polarized light, and I gave them all some strips of Polaroid. Polaroid passes only light whose electric vector is in a certain direction, so I explained how you could tell which way the light is polarized from whether the Polaroid is dark or light. We first took two strips of Polaroid and rotated them until they let the most light through. From doing that, we could tell that the two strips were now emitting light polarized in the same direction. What passed through one piece of Polaroid could also pass through the other. But then I asked them how one could tell the absolute direction of polarization from a single piece of Polaroid. They hadn't any idea. I knew this took a certain amount of ingenuity. So I gave them a hint: look at the light reflected from the bay outside. Nobody said anything. Then I said, "Have you ever heard of Brewster's angle?" "Yes, sir. Brewster's angle is the angle at which light reflected from a medium with an index of refraction is completely polarized." And which way is the light polarized when it's reflected? The light is polarized perpendicular to the plane of reflection, sir. Even now I have to think about it. They knew it cold. They even knew the tangent of the angle equals the index. I said, 
Well, still nothing. They had just told me that light reflected from a medium with an index, such as the bay outside, was polarized. They had even told me which way it was polarized. I said, look at the bay outside, through the Polaroid. Now turn the Polaroid. Ooh, it's polarized, they said. After a lot of investigation, I finally figured out that the students had memorized everything, but they didn't know what anything meant. When they heard light that is reflected from a medium with an index, they didn't know that it meant a material such as water. They didn't know that the direction of the light is the direction in which you see something when you're looking at it, and so on. Everything was entirely memorized, yet nothing had been translated into meaningful words. So if I asked, what is Brewster's angle, I'm going into the computer with the right key words. But if I say, look at the water, nothing happens. They don't have anything under, look at the water. Later I attended a lecture at the engineering school. The lecture went like this, translated into English. Two bodies are considered equivalent if equal torques will produce equal acceleration. Two bodies are considered equivalent if equal torques will produce equal acceleration. The students were all sitting there taking dictation, and when the professor repeated the sentence, they checked it to make sure they wrote it down all right. Then they wrote down the next sentence, and on and on. I was the only one who knew the professor was talking about objects with the same moment of inertia, and it was hard to figure out. I didn't see how they were going to learn anything from that. Here he was talking about moments of inertia, but there was no discussion about how hard it is to push a door open when you put heavy weights on the outside, compared to when you put them near the hinge. Nothing. After the lecture, I talked to a student. You take all those notes. What do you do with them? Oh, we study them, he says. We'll have an exam. What will the exam be like? Very easy. I can tell you now one of the questions. He looks at his notebook and says, When are two bodies equivalent? And the answer is, Two bodies are considered equivalent if equal torques will produce equal acceleration. So you see, they could pass the examinations and learn all this stuff and not know anything at all, except what they had memorized. Then I went to an entrance exam for students coming into the engineering school. It was an oral exam, and I was allowed to listen to it. One of the students was absolutely super. He answered everything nifty. The examiners asked him what diamagnetism was, and he answered it perfectly. Then they asked, When light comes at an angle through a sheet of material with a certain thickness and a certain index, N, what happens to the light? It comes out parallel to itself, sir. Displaced. And how much is it displaced? I don't know, sir, but I can figure it out. So he figured it out. It was very good, but I had by this time my suspicions. After the exam, I went up to this bright young man and explained to him that I was from the United States and that I wanted to ask him some questions that would not affect the result of his examination in any way. The first question I ask is, Can you give me some example of diamagnetic substance? No. Then I asked, If this book was made of glass and I was looking at something on the table through it, 
What would happen to the image if I tilted the glass? It would be deflected, sir, by twice the angle that you've turned the book. I said, You haven't got it mixed up with a mirror, have you? No, sir. He had just told me in the examination that the light would be displaced, parallel to itself, and therefore the image would move over to one side, but would not be turned by any angle. He had even figured out how much it would be displaced, but he didn't realize that a piece of glass is a material with an index, and that his calculation had applied to my question. I taught a course at the engineering school on mathematical methods in physics, in which I tried to show how to solve problems by trial and error. It's something that people don't usually learn, so I began with some simple examples of arithmetic to illustrate the method. I was surprised that only about eight out of the eighty or so students turned in the first assignment. So I gave a strong lecture about having to actually try it, not just sit back and watch me do it. After the lecture, some students came up to me in a little delegation and told me that I didn't understand the backgrounds that they have. That they can study without doing the problems, that they have already learned arithmetic, and that this stuff was beneath them. So I kept going with the class, and no matter how complicated or obviously advanced the work was becoming, they were never handing a damn thing in. Of course, I realized what it was. They couldn't do it. One other thing I could never get them to do was to ask questions. Finally, a student explained it to me. If I ask you a question during the lecture, afterwards everybody will be telling me, What are you wasting our time for in the class? We're trying to learn something. And you're stopping him by asking a question. It was a kind of one upmanship, where nobody knows what's going on, and they put the other one down if they did know. They all fake that they know, and if one student admits for a moment that something is confusing by asking a question, the others take a high handed attitude. Acting as if it's not confusing at all, telling him that he's wasting their time. I explained how useful it was to work together, to discuss the questions, to talk it over, but they wouldn't do that either, because they would be losing face if they had to ask someone else. It was pitiful, all the work they did, intelligent people, but they got themselves into this funny state of mind, this strange kind of self propagating education which is meaningless, utterly meaningless. At the end of the academic year, the students asked me to give a talk about my experiences of teaching in Brazil. At the talk, there would be not only students, but professors and government officials. So I made them promise that I could say whatever I wanted. They said, Sure, of course, it's a free country. So I came in, carrying the elementary physics textbook that they used in the first year of college. They thought this book was especially good because it had different kinds of typeface bold black for the most important things to remember, lighter for less important things, and so on. Right away, somebody said, You're not going to say anything bad about the textbook, are you? The man who wrote it is here, and everybody thinks it's a good textbook. You promised I could say whatever I wanted. The lecture hall was full. I started out by defining science as an understanding of the behavior of nature. Then I asked, What is a good reason for teaching science? Of course, no country can consider itself civilized unless yak, yak, yak. They were all sitting there nodding, because I know that's the way they think. Then I say, That, of course, is absurd, because why should we feel we have to keep up with another country? We have to do it for a good reason, a sensible reason. 
not just because other countries do. Then I talked about the utility of science and its contribution to the improvement of the human condition and all that. I really teased them a little bit. Then I say, the main purpose of my talk is to demonstrate to you that no science is being taught in Brazil. I can see them stir, thinking, what? No science? This is absolutely crazy. We have all these classes. So I tell them that one of the first things to strike me when I came to Brazil was to see elementary school kids in bookstores buying physics books. There are so many kids learning physics in Brazil, beginning much earlier than kids do in the United States, that it's amazing you don't find many physicists in Brazil. Why is that? So many kids are working so hard, and nothing comes of it. Then I gave the analogy of a Greek scholar who loves the Greek language, who knows that in his own country there aren't many children studying Greek. But he comes to another country where he is delighted to find everybody studying Greek, even the smaller kids in the elementary schools. He goes to the examination of a student who is coming to get his degree in Greek and asks him, what were Socrates' ideas on the relationship between truth and beauty? And the student can answer. Then he asks the student, What did Socrates say to Plato in the third symposium? The student lights up and goes, Brrrr up! He tells you everything, word for word, that Socrates said in beautiful Greek. But what Socrates was talking about in the third symposium was the relationship between truth and beauty. What this Greek scholar discovers is, the students in another country learn Greek by first learning to pronounce the letters, then the words, and then sentences and paragraphs. They can recite word for word what Socrates said, without realizing that those Greek words actually mean something. To the student they are all artificial sounds. Nobody has ever translated them into words the students can understand. I said, that's how it looks to me when I see you teaching the kids science here in Brazil. Big blast, right? Then I held up the elementary physics textbook they were using. There are no experimental results mentioned anywhere in this book, except in one place where there is a ball rolling down an inclined plane, in which it says how far the ball got after one second, two seconds, three seconds, and so on. The numbers have errors in them. That is, if you look at them, you think you're looking at experimental results because the numbers are a little above or a little below the theoretical values. The book even talks about having to correct the experimental errors. Very fine. The trouble is, when you calculate the value of the acceleration constant from these values, you get the right answer. But a ball rolling down an inclined plane, if it is actually done, has an inertia to get it to turn and will, if you do the experiment produce five-sevenths of the right answer because of the extra energy needed to go into the rotation of the ball. Therefore, this single example of experimental results is obtained from a fake experiment. Nobody had rolled such a ball, or they would never have gotten those results. I have discovered something else, I continued. By flipping the pages at random and putting my finger in and reading the sentences on that page, I can show you what's the matter how it's not science, but memorizing in every circumstance. Therefore, I am brave enough to flip through the pages now in front of this audience to put my finger in, to read, and to show you. So I did it. Brrr.
up, I stuck my finger in, and I started to read. Triboluminescence. Triboluminescence is the light emitted when crystals are crushed. I said, and there, have you got science? No. You have only told what a word means in terms of other words. You haven't told anything about nature. What crystals produce light when you crush them? Why they produce light? Did you see any student go home and try it? He can't. But if instead you were to write, when you take a lump of sugar and crush it with a pair of pliers in the dark, you can see a bluish flash. Some other crystals do that too. Nobody knows why. The phenomenon is called triboluminescence. Then someone will go home and try it. Then there's an experience of nature. I used that example to show them, but it didn't make any difference where I would have put my finger in the book. It was like that everywhere. Finally, I said that I couldn't see how anyone could be educated by this self-propagating system in which people pass exams and teach others to pass exams, but nobody knows anything. However, I said, I must be wrong. There were two students in my class who did very well, and one of the physicists I know was educated entirely in Brazil. Thus, it must be possible for some people to work their way through the system, bad as it is. Well, after I gave the talk, the head of the science education department got up and said, Mr. Feynman has told us some things that are very hard for us to hear but it appears to be that he really loves science and is sincere in his criticism. Therefore, I think we should listen to him. I came here knowing we have some sickness in our system of education. What I have learned is that we have a cancer. And he sat down. That gave other people the freedom to speak out, and there was a big excitement. Everybody was getting up and making suggestions. The students got some committee together to mimeograph the lectures in advance, and they got other committees organized to do this and that. Then something happened which was totally unexpected for me. One of the students got up and said, I'm one of the two students whom Mr. Feynman referred to at the end of his talk. I was not educated in Brazil. I was educated in Germany, and I've just come to Brazil this year. The other student, who had done well in class, had a similar thing to say, and the professor I had mentioned got up and said, I was educated here in Brazil during the war, when, fortunately, all of the professors had left the university, so I learned everything by reading alone. Therefore, I was not really educated under the Brazilian system. I didn't expect that. I knew the system was bad, but one hundred percent? It was terrible. Since I had gone to Brazil under a program sponsored by the United States government, I was asked by the State Department to write a report about my experiences in Brazil. So I wrote out the essentials of the speech I had just given. I found out later, through the grapevine, that the reaction of somebody in the State Department was, and that shows you how dangerous it is to send somebody to Brazil who is so naive. Foolish fellow, he can only cause trouble. He didn't understand the problems. Quite the contrary. I think this person in the State Department was naive to think that because he saw a university with a list of courses and descriptions, that's what it was. Man of a Thousand Tongues When I was in Brazil, 
I had struggled to learn the local language and decided to give my physics lectures in Portuguese. Soon after I came to Caltech, I was invited to a party hosted by Professor Bakker. Before I arrived at the party, Bakker told the guests, This guy Feynman thinks he's smart because he learned a little Portuguese, so let's fix him good. Mrs. Smith here, she's completely Caucasian, grew up in China. Let's have her greet Feynman in Chinese. I walk into the party innocently, and Bakker introduces me to all these people. Mr. Feynman, this is Mr. So-and-so. I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. Feynman. And this is Mr. Such-and-Such. My pleasure, Mr. Feynman. And this is Mrs. Smith. Ai, chung jia, she says, bowing. This is such a surprise to me that I figure the only thing to do is reply in the same spirit. I bow politely to her, and with complete confidence I say, Ah, ching jong jian. Oh my God, she exclaims, losing her own composure. I knew this would happen. I speak Mandarin, and he speaks Cantonese. Certainly, Mr. Big. I used to cross the United States in my automobile every summer, trying to make it to the Pacific Ocean. But for various reasons, I would always get stuck somewhere, usually in Las Vegas. I remember the first time particularly. I liked it very much. Then, as now, Las Vegas made its money on the people who gamble. So the whole problem for the hotels was to get people to come there to gamble. So they had shows and dinners which were very inexpensive, almost free. You didn't have to make any reservations for anything. You could walk in, sit down at one of the many empty tables, and enjoy the show. It was just wonderful for a man who didn't gamble, because I was enjoying all the advantages. The rooms were inexpensive, the meals were next to nothing, the shows were good, and I liked the girls. One day, I was lying around the pool at my motel, and some guy came up and started to talk to me. I can't remember how he got started, but his idea was that I presumably worked for a living, and it was really quite silly to do that. Look how easy it is for me, he said. I just hang around the pool all the time and enjoy life in Las Vegas. How the hell do you do that without working? Simple. I bet on the horses. I don't know anything about horses, but I don't see how you can make a living betting on the horses, I said skeptically. Of course you can, he said. That's how I live. I'll tell you what. I'll teach you how to do it. We'll go down and I'll guarantee that you'll win a hundred dollars. How can you do that? I'll bet you a hundred dollars that you'll win, he said. So if you win, it doesn't cost you anything. And if you lose, you get a hundred dollars. So I think, gee, that's right. If I win a hundred dollars on the horses and I have to pay him, I don't lose anything. It's just an exercise. It's just proof that his system works. And if he fails, I win a hundred dollars. It's quite wonderful. He takes me down to some betting place where they have a list of horses and racetracks all over the country. He introduces me to other people who say, Geez, he's great, I want a hundred dollars. I gradually realize that I have to put up some of my own money for the bets, and I begin to get a little nervous. How much money do I have to bet, I ask. Oh, three or four hundred dollars. I haven't got that much. Besides, it begins to worry me. Suppose I lose all the bets. So then he says, I'll tell you what, my advice will only cost you fifty dollars, and only if it works. If it doesn't work, 
I'll give you the hundred dollars you would have won anyway. I figure, wow, now I win both ways, either fifty or a hundred dollars. How the heck can he do that? Then I realize that if you have a reasonably even game, forget the little losses from the take for the moment in order to understand it, the chance that you'll win a hundred dollars versus losing your four hundred dollars is four to one. So out of five times that he tries this on somebody, four times they're going to win a hundred dollars. He gets two hundred, and he points out to them how smart he is. The fifth time he has to pay a hundred dollars. So he receives two hundred on the average when he's paying out one hundred. So I finally understood how he could do that. This process went on for a few days. He would invent some scheme that sounded like a terrific deal at first, but after I thought about it for a while, I'd slowly figure out how it worked. Finally, in some sort of desperation, he says, "All right, I'll tell you what. You pay me fifty dollars for the advice, and if you lose." I'll pay you back all your money. Now I can't lose on that, so I say, "All right, you've got a deal." Fine, he says, but unfortunately, I have to go to San Francisco this weekend. So you just mail me the results, and if you lose your four hundred dollars, I'll send you the money. The first schemes were designed to make him money by honest arithmetic. Now he's going to be out of town. The only way he's going to make money on this scheme is not to send it, to be a real cheat. So I never accepted any of his offers, but it was very entertaining to see how he operated. The other thing that was fun in Las Vegas was meeting showgirls. I guess they were supposed to hang around the bar between shows to attract customers. I met several of them that way and talked to them and found them to be very nice people. People who say showgirls, eh? Have already made up their mind what they are, but in any group, if you look at it, there's all kinds of variety. For example, there was the daughter of a dean of an eastern university. She had a talent for dancing and liked to dance. She had the summer off, and dancing jobs were hard to find, so she worked as a chorus girl in Las Vegas. Most of the showgirls were very nice, friendly people. They were all beautiful, and I just love beautiful girls. In fact. Showgirls were my real reason for liking Las Vegas so much. At first, I was a little bit afraid. The girls were so beautiful; they had such a reputation and so forth. I would try to meet them, and I'd choke a little bit when I talked. It was difficult at first, but gradually it got easier. And finally, I had enough confidence that I wasn't afraid of anybody. I had a way of having adventures which is hard to explain. It's like fishing. Where you put a line out, and then you have to have patience. When I would tell someone about some of my adventures, they might say, "Oh, come on, let's do that." So we would go to a bar to see if something will happen, and they would lose patience after twenty minutes or so. You have to spend a couple of days before something happens, on average. I spent a lot of time talking to showgirls. One would introduce me to another, and after a while, something interesting would often happen. I remember one girl. Who liked to drink Gibsons? She danced at the Flamingo Hotel, and I got to know her rather well. When I'd come into town, I'd order a Gibson put at her table before she sat down to announce my arrival. One time, I went over and sat next to her, and she said, "I'm with a man tonight, a high roller from Texas." I had already heard about this guy. Whenever he'd play at the craps table, everybody would gather around to see him gamble. 
He came back to the table where we were sitting, and my showgirl friend introduced me to him. The first thing he said to me was, You know something? I lost $60,000 here last night. I knew what to do. I turned to him, completely unimpressed, and I said, Is that supposed to be smart or stupid? We were eating breakfast in the dining room. He said, Here, let me sign your check. They don't charge me for all these things because I gamble so much here. I've got enough money that I don't need to worry about who pays for my breakfast, thank you. I kept putting him down each time he tried to impress me. He tried everything, how rich he was, how much oil he had in Texas, and nothing worked because I knew the formula. We ended up having quite a bit of fun together. One time, when we were sitting at the bar, he said to me, See those girls at the table over there? They're whores from Los Angeles. They looked very nice. They had a certain amount of class. He said, Tell you what I'll do. I'll introduce them to you, and then I'll pay for the one you want. I didn't feel like meeting the girls, and I knew he was saying that to impress me, so I began to tell him no. But then I thought, This is something. This guy is trying so hard to impress me. He's willing to buy this for me. If I'm ever going to tell the story. So I said to him, Well, okay, introduce me. We went over to their table, and he introduced me to the girls and then went off for a moment. A waitress came around and asked us what we wanted to drink. I ordered some water, and the girl next to me said, Is it all right if I have champagne? You can have whatever you want, I replied coolly. "'Cause you're paying for it. "'What's the matter with you?' she said. "'Cheapskate or something?' "'That's right.' "'You're certainly not a gentleman,' she said indignantly. "'You figured me out immediately,' I replied. "'I had learned in New Mexico many years before not to be a gentleman. "'Pretty soon they were offering to buy me drinks. "'The tables were turned completely. "'By the way, the Texas oil man never came back.' After a while, one of the girls said, Let's go over to the El Rancho. Maybe things are livelier over there. We got in their car. It was a nice car, and they were nice people. On the way, they asked me my name. Dick Feynman. Where are you from, Dick? What do you do? I'm from Pasadena. I work at Caltech. One of the girls said, Oh, isn't that the place where that scientist Powling comes from? I had been in Las Vegas many times, over and over, and there was nobody who ever knew anything about science. I had talked to businessmen of all kinds, and to them, a scientist was a nobody. Yeah, I said, astonished. And there's a fellow named Gellin, or something like that, a physicist. I couldn't believe it. I was riding in a car full of prostitutes, and they know all this stuff. Yeah, his name is Gelman. How did you happen to know that? Your pictures were in Time magazine. It's true. They had pictures of ten U.S. scientists in Time magazine for some reason. I was in it, and so were Pauling and Gelman. How did you remember the names, I asked. Well, we were looking through the pictures, and we picked out the youngest and the handsomest. Gelman is younger than I am. We got to the El Rancho Hotel, and the girls continued this game of acting towards me like everybody normally acts towards them. Would you like to gamble, they asked. We'll pay for it, and you can keep half the winnings. I gambled a little bit with their money, and we all had a good time. After a while, they said, Look, uh, we see a live one, so we'll have to leave you now. 
and they went back to work. One time I was sitting at a bar, and I noticed two girls with an older man. Finally he walked away, and they came over and sat next to me, the prettier and more active one next to me, and her duller friend named Pam on the other side. Things started going along very nicely right away. She was very friendly. Soon she was leaning against me, and I put my arm around her. Two men came in and sat at a table nearby. Then before the waitress came, they walked out. Did you see those men? My newfound friend said. Yeah, they're friends of my husband. Oh? What is this? You see, I just married John Big. She mentioned a very famous name. And we've had a little argument. We're on our honeymoon and John is always gambling. He doesn't pay any attention to me. So I go off and enjoy myself, but he keeps sending spies around to check on what I'm doing.